0: Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In the spirit of ANU's motto, which is First to know the nature of things, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and waterways which were never ceded. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend our respect to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples Listening today.
1: I asked the Prime Minister, how good is Australia? Please explain. I'm here to make a public statement. Look, I'm going to uh, shirt from Mr. I Clinton. am a fighter and
0: not a fighter. I don't think I know. it. And I want to thank uh, that fellow down under. Well, a fair shake of the sauce bottle, mate. G'day there, Mark Kenny with ANU's Democracy Sausage for another week. And uh, as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Maria Teflaga, political scientist extraordinaire from the School of Politics and International Relations, with which I'm also associated here at ANU. Welcome, Maria.
2: Thank you, Mark. I, I should get that on my business cards, yeah. I think that'd be cool, yeah.
0: Yeah, extraordinary. Yeah, well ah, done. It's, ah. I think it's well-deserved. Now, it's really interesting, isn't it? Um it hasn't been a very uplifting time in politics, I think it's fair to say, recently, as many people have observed. But there have been some pluses as well. Uh, The legislation establishing a referendum has now passed the Senate, so we know that officially the nation is on track to a referendum later this year in the last quarter of the year, as the PM describes it at the moment. So, of course, we eagerly await what the date will be, but um, sometime in October has been been mooted. And uh, at the weekend, the federal government also announced, out of nowhere really it seemed, $2 Two billion dollars extra for affordable rental housing for the states, so that was kind of, um, I think, a a a bright moment in uh, at the end of a a week that had been particularly bad. I think in Canberra. Yet that said, uh, the Housing Australia Future Fund, which is this you know program announced by the government in the budget, in which the Greens say is inadequate and uh, therefore. Uh, have been opposing and the, and the Liberals oppose on principle, that's been shunted off to October as well for uh, for a vote. Uh, it's a sort of like a quasi-rejection. There's mumbling from the government that this sets up a, a potential double dissolution trigger and that that seems to be a threat to the, to the Greens who'd suddenly find that all of their senators are all up for election all at once. The quota would be lower, of course, in a double D. Do, it, it sure would. So at one level, uh, they they might say, "Well, bring it on," but at another level, there's a sort of a, you know, they're at a high water mark at the moment, and and there's a kind of a, you know, a mortality risk, I guess. Some some senators may not be returned, and uh, that's going to be. Um
2: no, I mean, I I think the Greens have been really kind of interesting, like politically, around the housing stuff. Um, they, uh, they they they've sort of showed a level of maturity around negotiating on, on climate right which which I think is actually quite impressive given that um, like if you actually look at the configuration of that party room it was not exactly easy for Adam Bant to land that deal with mm. his incoming members or his incoming senators um, and just the sort of like the driving motivation of of the Greens uh, as a political force. And I I think this is something we kind of discount a bit, but, you know, like a lot of Greens MPs, especially their their leaders until quite recently, are literally people who were jailed for protecting the environment. Like Mm. that is a very different worldview to someone like Adam Bant, who's kind of come through a different career path and a Mm. different trajectory, who is a lot more what we would call materialistic. And I think a lot more pragmatic and strategic. Uh, so, what,
0: Can I just, I'm just going to ask you to unpack materialistic because some people will say, see that as a slur, but you don't mean it in that No, those I terms. don't
2: mean it as a slur. I don't mean it as a slur. I, I sort of mean it in the sort of political science sense, which is, Before, you know, basically the 60s or 70s, politics used to be materialistic, i.e. it was about wages. Uh, It was about, you know, things you could really kind of touch, basically. Outcomes. Yeah, Yeah. real outcomes, you know. And that's not to – I I, I don't mean that. I mean that physical outcomes, you know, is is really what I mean, things you can touch – uh, and then you know the post-material revolution kind of happened, and this is what we associate with all the social movements that that have sort of shaped our modern world. So you know feminism, the gay rights mov- movement, the environmental movement, the consumer rights movement, uh, privacy movements. All of these movements, which and you can kind of see why they're called post-material, because they're often things that are abstract legal frameworks or rights that unlock potential, not necessarily always things that you can kind of touch like mm. the public hospital, the. School that your child attends, the yeah. you know the house that you live in.
0: Yeah, yeah. So and and it is interesting, uh, Bant, in that regard. Uh, I've written about this a few times, and and in fact, um, changed some of my thinking about it as I've done so because I think when when Bant first became leader. I was asked by uh, I think it was a conversation to think about and predict what kind of leader he would be and at that stage I was thinking of him as uh, you know very much a kind of um, a firebrand he was he's a he's a you know he's a very skilled communicator he knows how to stay on message and and he and he hits all the marks but he doesn't and he didn't strike me at the time as someone who was uh, big on the idea of compromise uh, he you know he was very very um sort of committed to his path I think what we've actually seen since then uh, and I've sort of written about it again for the conversation what we've seen since then is a, is a is a different kind of political leader for the Greens as you say he understands the politics very well and he he reads that he plays that game quite well but at the same time he also knows that the you know how you position and what you get is important so if we look at uh, that that matter you you, th- you thought about then uh, re- referred to the um, on the climate change question uh, on on policy in that regard the labor government was you know strongly kind of um positioning the greens or trying to sort of corner them on the question and say are you going to redo what you did in 2009 and block the um the the CPRS the carbon pollution reduction scheme and result being that you end up with um you know with no policy right mm-hmm. or you end up with the carbon tax that we eventually had but which was had you know which, which was
2: ultimately repealed. Right? Yeah it was
0: ultimately repealed because the circumstances in which it came about were so incredibly sort of uh, you know stressed really and toxic and contested um so when greens Supporters say to me, "Oh, well, you know, it, they didn't just block the CPRS; they established a carbon price. Yes, they did, uh, but the circumstances of that were, were were doomed almost from the beginning in a political sense. And you can almost draw a, a sort of a causal line between that crisis and the emergence of Tony Abbott and, therefore, things that happened yes. thereafter. Yes. And Ban obviously didn't want to get sort of didn't want to go back into that territory. So he did reach an agreement with the government on climate policy." Yeah. But he did so in such a way that he was also, you know, messaging very clearly to his own side. You know, at the same time as he was doing a deal with the government, he was lambasting them, saying uh, that they are in the pocket of the oil and gas industry, you know, completely sort of. Drunk on the on the on the support they get from that industry.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think there's a couple of important things here. Like, I think Labor has been incredibly successful at blaming the Greens for their own failure around carbon pricing. I mean, they were the government; could have gone to a double D on it. They didn't. Yeah. So there's twenty ten. You mean? That's yeah. right, exactly. And you know, and and that was the end of Rudd's prime ministership. We can draw a causal line there too, right? You can, so there's yeah. that. The, I mean, I think what is really interesting about this is that ultimately he's been able to take his his party room with him they they have had to do a deal on this climate stuff because as they rightly kind of say you know that the future of the species is kind of at stake um and so therefore they've doubled down on housing this is their point of differentiation yeah you know, yeah. this is where they're creating space
0: they are and uh they you know we hear this from max uh chandler Mather the um the, the young uh greens housing spokesperson he's talking about a third of uh, of of the population of the adult population, are renting, and saying you know who represents them. Well, uh, these are all interesting issues for the expanded crossbench, of which the Greens, of course, had a radical expansion. They had you know they just had Adam Band in the lower house before the last election. Now they've got three more, which has also, I think, uh, had an impact upon the way that they are conducting their politics. But someone else who was on in that crossbench is Allegra Spender, the member for Wentworth, and I'm very glad to say that she joins us here on Democracy Sausage. Welcome to the Trestle Table.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: It's really good to have you here. Um, yeah, what's it like uh, in in the, in the in the crossbench? Is it uh, you're all one big happy family, or is it balkanised? Is there tension?
1: Now, look, to be honest, I think it's very constructive. Uh, you know, I've came i've come from business and the not for profit sector, and I'm used to you know working with people you know within your organisation, with other organisations, and you're always trying to find common ground. Yeah, That's so you're our-
0: collaborating with people who have different interests, but yeah. Also shared interests.
1: Shared yeah. interests. And I think that, and that's that's how I really approach the crossbench and I think that's how a lot of the crossbench um, approach it, saying, look, you know, we're here to do a job and that job is to, you know, make this parliament um, deliver for the Australian people. And that's that's the most important job that we're here for. Um, and therefore, you know, you you see different issues, you have different opinions about things, but I think I, I'm willing to work with anyone on the crossbench, both the House and the Senate, um, because I think my job is there to, you know, to make good things happen and I work also across the, you know, with the with the major parties as well. And that's really the approach. So, you know, working with the crossbench so far has been a real a real pleasure. Um, because I think most people they're in a very constructive space.
0: Yeah. So there's a there's there's some level of coordination. I mean one of the things I guess we want to be really careful about how we describe this because one of the criticisms particularly that the Libs tried to make against all of the teal independents, and mm. I see you've got a lovely teal scarf on there. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, um, Against the independents in the lead up to the election, when they were, you know, fighting for their for their their strongholds mm. that they, you know, their their liberal jewels that they saw as their birthright, almost, yes. <laughs> um, uh, was that you know these teals were frauds. I mean, that they were working together, that they were a sort of a quasi party, uh, that they were, you know, being manipulated by Simon Holmes at Court and so forth. Um, yeah. So has that been? you know that that was a sort of a slur that you know luckily voters rejected because i always knew that was mm-hmm. nonsense and i wrote so a number of times um but has that kind of uh, you know getting past that getting into parliament has it then been an issue in people's minds not to be seen to be a party or is it just, does it just naturally not occur
1: look it's not an issue really for me um you know and and I think you can see it pretty clearly in our voting records to be honest we don't all vote the same and it's because we have different communities and and yeah. different views um, but you know, I always say you know the the you know the coalition can't have it both ways they can't you know on the one side they said oh you know all these independents it'll be chaos and they're a party and I yes. think what we've shown <laughs> is is both those things aren't true yeah. um, that you can work very constructively together and you know be very constructive force I think in in the past. Parliament, um, and that's that's how I see it. And you know, with the Simon Holmes Court piece, I always say I'm a 45 year old woman. I don't need to be told what to do by yeah. you know man pulling my strings. You know, yeah. I've got enough. Yeah. You know, I've got an, enough on, on my plate. to And you know, I've just I'm here because I, I want to really do a
0: good job, Maria. That always struck me. I mean, uh, the point Allegra makes there about. A, that gender aspect. It was really strong to me, even at the time, you know, that most of these candidates were women, professional women, people who had made their lives, done successful things in their careers, and were stepping into the public space, putting their, you know, stepping forward, putting their names up for election. And a lot of the criticism did have that kind of undertone of, you know, these people are just, you know, puppets. They're just being manipulated. It's a
2: really revealing, I think, moment. For the Liberal Party, you know, like there's that sort of hack phrase about good writing, you know, show don't tell. Well, I mean, I think they kind of did both simultaneously um, in 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 doing that. And 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 if you look at the post election. Wash up, um, it's pretty clear that they actually really didn't understand the problem set that they were actually facing. I think that they struggled to actually include a lot of the teal seats in their overnight tracking because they were traditionally safe seats. Mm. And so they were really blindsided. Mm On the night, uh, perhaps not the people on the ground, like the actual individual candidates, um, who probably were cognizant of that. But it sort of goes to show how information and power is distributed in that party. That mm. that, that that was such a shock.
0: Yeah. Now we mentioned the the housing issue, the housing uh, Australia Future Fund, for example, which is stalled between uh, you know w- with that standoff with the Greens and the, and the Coalition. Um, Allegri, you've recently been talking about the idea of a citizens' assembly for mm. getting past these kinds of political deadlocks, I suppose, these, these policies that just stall where the machine itself as it is currently configured, that being parliament and the, and the mm. political parties and the interests they represent, that it sort of grinds to a halt, that you get the standoff. And you're talking about a way of unlocking alternative pathways forward can you talk to that?
1: Yeah, sure, I'd love to. Look, um, this, the, the idea of a citizens' assembly is about randomly selecting people from across the community, you know, in this case a country, but um, can be and has been used successfully, you know, in, in, at the council, local government and state level um, in Australia already. And it's um, bringing those people together and saying, um, giving them a very specific problem and saying, you know, can you come up with a consensus view of at least 80% of people in the room with um, solutions to this challenge? And, um, you know, you've seen this in Ireland. They use this um, around legalisation of abortion. Mm -hmm. Um, You see this in France. Um, Macron, the president, uh, commissioned one of these citizens' assemblies to use this on on climate action and how uh, France should address address climate change. And you see this, you know, the city of Melbourne, for example, used it on how to deal with um, a significant budget deficit that the council had got into a political, were politically stuck in terms of um, the options moving forward. And so I think um, it's it's bringing that, that group of people together and going for consensus. I think is a great opportunity of bringing forward solutions um, that are not typically on the table for, um, for you know for the politi- for major political parties in particular, but also. Um, you know bringing the australian community with them um because it's it's real people not playing for political interests not saying not looking you know for example in the housing you know future fund that we're seeing right now where this is a political contest there's mm. no contest between the greens and labor that they don't support social housing they both do this is a political brinkmanship mm. about who's you know how far they can push this and frankly I sat there yesterday in the press conference with all these different um, housing groups who are saying, we've got houses ready to go. Can you please pass this bill? And so that's the frustration. And and what I'm trying to do is um, block that, not just for social housing, but for housing affordability in Australia more broadly.
0: Yeah, it's a, it's a. It, you're right. It's a, um, a fascinating moment in the sense, but an all too standard one, really, mm. where we see political parties uh, adopt a position, and then they, then through pride. Um, and uh, and 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 I guess calculations about you know what damage they, they would suffer electorally. Uh, they refused to negotiate. Now the government's obviously decided this is the way forward for this social and affordable housing. The half the, the Housing Australia Future Fund would put ten billion dollars into a fund. Um, that fund would earn money. This is that sort of way future funds work. That fund would earn 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 an income, mm-hmm. and from that income there would be expenditure on social and affordable housing. Thirty thousand housing units, I think, over five years, is it? Mm. Um, it's you know not an insignificant number, but when you consider the scale of the problem in Australia, it's also well short of, of demand. Uh, and of course, we hear all the time that supply is the problem here. So this is a, a, a sort of a multi-level problem. It's worse in some parts of the country than others, but it affects people who are uh, least well equipped to handle it. And um, And it needs to be addressed. The Greens have a very significant point, I think, in saying it doesn't go far enough. Uh, They initially were saying they want 10 times. So the the government's proposing up to $500 million dollars that is income from that ten billion would be spent on social and affordable housing per year, right? The Greens are saying no. It has to be. Well, initially they said ten times that amount, so they were looking for five billion dollars of, of expenditure. They've now t- changed that to two point five. They say they have moved, uh, but the government hasn't. The government's now, I think, changed what was up to five hundred million. They now call it a floor, so they would spend that at least. But it's probably also a ceiling, from what I can. Tell from reading their um mm-hmm. their words. Uh, either way, we're not anywhere at the moment in in sort of moving forward on this. There is the two billion dollars mm-hmm. I, I mentioned that sort of came out of nowhere on the weekend, which is very welcome, no doubt. But it's separate from this. Um, how would let's say take your idea uh, forward? Let's assume for a moment that you've you've got the citizens assembly up. They 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 deliberate on this over a period of time. They come up with a solution. What what happens then? I mean, mm-hmm. because it's not deliberative in the sense. I mean, it it, it uh, or at least it's not decision making in sure. the, in the way government is. Right. In, at the end of the day, it still has to either be agreed with, adopted, or. Or not.
1: I think that's absolutely right. And that's how it's worked in other in other jurisdictions and, you know, in France and Ireland and, and also, you know, in Australia to date. It's not, it doesn't bind government, but it advises government. Um, and I think, you know, when I look at housing, I think it's, it's to be honest, Australian housing affordability in this country is broken. This is failed policy, you know, for the last 20 years mm. at sort of federal, state, local levels. Um, it's It has been something that, you know, I think all the governments to date are culpable. Um, for the impact of what this is having on, on communities now. It's a, a long-term problem and it's going to take a long time to solve. Um, and I think that we need to be honest about the scale of um, change that we will need to deal with housing effectively. In this country, so that you know people who are working hard, you know, have a fair chance of being able to afford a house near where they work without relying on their parents, because not everyone can rely on their parents, and that's not the Australian dream, you know, to always saying, mm. "Well, let me rely on my parents to be able to do this." Um, and so, what I think it, this, uh, what I think a citizens assembly on housing affordability um, it does or has the option to do, is actually expand the option set for what we should be considering, and it would deliberately include owners, renters, and um, and mortgage holders, you know, including also investors in property. So you challenge, you know, you and because you have to come up with the consensus, but you the people also have to listen to the experts. So they have an expert briefing, but then have a whole series of experts who come in. That's a chance for everyday people to come up and say, well, we all have different interests here, but we have a shared view in this country, which is that everyone in this country should be able to afford housing, um, and this is our consensus view that that deals with some of those political trade. Because I think that politics often isn't able, you know, with the wedging that goes on, particularly with the major parties, there's a failure to sort of face some of the political Mm. trade-offs. You know, we've got to a culture where no one, you know, no one can be worse off. And frankly, sometimes things have to change. And, you know, but they can change for the good of the country. And so I think that's really important for me as um that's the reason why I think this is a a really good way of unlocking um, a difficult problem. But just, you know, again, the government doesn't have to um, adopt all, all the recommendations, um, but it does give them an insight to what also not the sort of focus group, not the sort of loud people saying, what actually ordinary citizens from across the country are saying.
0: Let's take a quick break there and be back in a moment. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes,
1: flat,
2: Or find us at policyforum.net slash podcasts.
0: Welcome back. You're with Democracy Sausage, which comes to you each week from the Australian National University. I'm with Allegra Spender and, of course, Dr. Maria Tafaga, who is with us each week. And we were talking just then about, you know, this mechanism of, of using citizens' assemblies for these complex policy problems. You made a really good point there, Allegra, about um, many good points, but uh, among them um, uh, the point about, you know, uh the the implication that sometimes some people are going to lose something out of policy. You know, if you've got a distribution problem, an unfairness problem, an access problem, people are being denied basic human rights like housing, then changes need to be made. Now we know many people in uh, in Australia who are well off own more than one house. There are people who have multiple rental properties. There are there are um, people who have Beach houses that are, you know, spent only a small amount of time occupied. There are people who are living in enormous houses, probably many people in Wentworth, actually, now that I think about it. In fact, I think Wentworth is, I don't know if this is still the case, but it used to be the wealthiest electorate in. In Australia, I remember looking at that. It's one of the wealthiest,
1: but interestingly, on housing, um, we have uh, um, sixty percent of our community live in flats and um, apartments. Yeah, and um, only about less than twenty percent actually um, own uh, live in a sort of freestanding house. So, it's wealthy, but it's and there are also high proportion of renters. So, around forty percent of the community rents again, which is much higher. It's it's higher than the community. So, it's more nuanced, I think, um, than than anybody really recognises.
0: Yeah, yeah, and that's a very good point, and and I, I. actually know that because I've been a renter there myself. Um, but nonetheless, it's really sort of fascinating, this idea that political parties need to find a way to sometimes confront these problems which have grown up. We, we, we subsidise housing in this country that is home ownership in a an extraordinary way through negative gearing, through capital gains tax concessions, these kinds of things. Housing has been sort of preferenced, right, as, as an investment vehicle. And this is been great for, for for sort of the boomer generation that have done well out of it, but for those coming afterwards it's it's presenting a bigger and bigger structural problem. So yeah I, I'm really fascinated by the extent to which and perhaps Marie you might have a, a view on this as well, the extent to which a mechanism like citizens assemblies could provide not just the the kind of a different intellectual kind of resource and perspective on complex policy problems, but in a sense, the political permission that the sort of the escape from the the current thinking that political parties might do—they have the authority of this body of, uh, of 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 citizens that are not vested interests that don't represent lobby groups or or, or investors or or even or even um, uh, perhaps one one single set of people, but, you know, is a cross-section. And this can provide political parties with some sort of escape clause from their current position. Yeah,
2: and that's exactly how these assemblies have been uh, used in the past. Like so if you look to the Irish case in the in the first instance, the reason why it was put to a citizens assembly the the issue of abortion uh, was simply because the the issue could not be resolved by the political system, right? It had completely broken down. Mm. And then, you know, that had worked uh, so effectively in in part because of some of the things Allegra kind of said. It's it's a it's a it's a structured long-form discussion, right? Yep. So it's it's actually a discussion that happens over multiple iterations over time. So people have time to think. It's it's usually carefully curated and and, and managed by basically neutral bureaucrats who essentially make sure that the full spectrum of opinion is is represented. Because there,
0: and there's quite a literature on this, isn't there? Uh, yes. That exists and and some of the world's. Best experts in citizens assemblies are actually in Australia. People like John Dryer. That's right, uh, over at UC. Yeah, yes, that's yeah.
2: right. We should we should get him on. To, Mark Evans as well. That's right. Yeah. yeah. They. Yeah. Yeah. Del Webb. Both and, professors. And so on. Yes. Adele Nicole Webb. Nicole yeah. Curato. Salen. Um, 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 whose last name is now escaped me. I know. <laughs> but um, um, yeah, that's right. So so yeah, I think I think citizens assemblies are a great idea. I mean, I'm actually a little bit even more radical. Like there's this talk about increasing the size of the lower house. Well, I mean, if if it was up to me. That I would also give a portion of the Senate seats over to a sortition model, which is essentially permanently putting in everyday citizens into the Senate because it's probably realistically the only way to get um, ordinary citizens into politics without a Simon Holmes Accord to sort of help seed some of these community kind of um, groups and actions from below.
0: I'm just going to ask you to to, to explain the term sortition. What is sortition? Mm.
2: Sortition is basically jury duty for politics. So the idea is that you essentially select randomly from the population, but you'd need a couple of guardrails around it. Like one, uh, you'd actually really need to offer incoming like uh, effectively amateur politicians, like a lot of training because otherwise they can kind of be picked off by the major parties. the The second is is that you need to think carefully about how long the terms are because it's obviously going to be quite disruptive to these people's lives. And then they actually need a decent pension because sometimes people can't get a job after being in politics. And if you're basically press ganged into it, um, you kind of need a security of of income after the fact, right? <laughs> what a great uh,
0: job it must be! You can't yeah. get another job. After it, well,
2: <laughs> there, there was actually a, a study done about the Victorian Parliament about the post-parliamentary lives of of politicians, and and I mean, you know, there's obviously the cases that we know about, you know, you know, such and such has gone on to lobby for X company mm. and so on, but then there are people who have literally ended up homeless, so it's it's actually it's non-trivial. Um, but so my so to get back to the actual issue at hand, which is citizens' assembly around housing. So I, I mean, I think these are generally very good ideas, but the, I guess the 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 thing the only thing that really concerns me about starting with something like housing is that housing is such a it's 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 got a lot of vested interests yep. right and it's also got a, a lot of decision points or you know veto points and that would be my concern around a citizens assembly is that if the political system is learning how to use them on on an issue like housing which is really complicated because of the multi level of government problem mm. that you've, you you yourself as highlighted i kind of worry that that the the recommendations will will be in effect difficult to implement because it, it's actually not clear who's necessarily responsible.
1: So we're proposing that it would be um, focus on the what is the federal government's role in this, not what is what is every government's role in this. And uh, you're absolutely right that it's it's a tricky issue. But I think if you focus on the federal government, what are their levers to pull? Then I think you can make that make that easier. But I think the fact that it's got vested interest actually makes it a really good topic um, because I think there are a lot of, you know, as a politician, I notice um, it's the loud people you hear. What I'm always trying to do, and particularly as a community independent, is speak to the people who, you know, who don't think to write to me, who don't, you know, aren't, who aren't engaged, but have, you know, thoughtful opinions, but they're too busy running their lives, raising their kids, you know, working, you know, doing their jobs. And and I think it's that is actually, I think, the opportunity a Citizens Assembly presents is getting those people um, to to be part of the conversation. Because I, you know, I think Australians are, are very reasonable people. You know, we're very constructive. You see that in our community engagement in, mm. in how we build our communities, where we're people who actually we want to find common ground with people. We want to build things with people. You know, we take people as they are. But we, you know, with politics can really sort of, is, is is sort of by nature, you know, driven by conflict. Media is interested in conflict. And this is, is the antidote to this. This is about trying to bring consensus in there and and then challenging the, poli- the political class to say, you know, if we can come up as a group of ordinary Australians, come up with consensus, you know, why can't you, you know, try and rise to that challenge as well?
2: Yeah, because what what it effectively does is break down the sort of zero-sum thinking, which is where housing politics uh, has Mm. kind of arrived, right, which is why the the policies you get don't actually do anything and just sort of pour petrol onto the fire.
1: Uh, look, I think in housing policy is a situation where people have been saying, you know, housing poli- announcing house- housing policies where it sounds good and is in fact actually de- desperately bad for Australian housing affordability. So things
0: like first home buyers grants and so forth, which in fact just add to demand and which also therefore push up prices. Yeah, you know it's, So it's, so people are rolling mm. up at auctions or, or or signing contracts for new builds um, with armed with money they've got from. The federal government and this results in the, the entry price for housing Increasing. going up. Yeah.
1: And I think that is the worst sort of politics and there's a worst sort of political outcome, but we get time and time again, which is sounds good, costs the taxpayer money, and actually is, uh, you know, at, in best case, is, does nothing. In, in worst case, often makes, makes the issue actually worse. And that's where the failure's been in housing.
0: This is one of the government's arguments, and a number of other people, not just the government, arguments against the Greens' uh, rental freeze okay. idea um, mm. that, uh, that this would have perverse effects in the market ultimately would reduce in, l- in 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 a reduction of supply.
1: Yeah. And look, I've looked at research around this. The Brookings Institute did some really good work on looking at the sort of a history of different sort of rent freezes, And that's what they find. It sort of leads to sort of gentrification, reduces supply and also lower quality of housing because landlords aren't incentivized to, you know, to upgrade, you know, the plumbing or invest in their housing stock. Um, and so that's, but again, it's a policy that sounds good, um, mm. but is potentially, you know, very detrimental to actually the problem that we're trying to solve. And and I think that's what you want a Citizens Assembly to to do is to be able to interrogate the evidence, to be able to listen to experts, to listen to people with lived experience but then have to come to a consensus and, you know, again, balancing all the different interests and the different types of people um, that we have in the country.
0: It's interesting, though, like when you think about it from the Greens' perspective, uh, like you say, it might not stand up to uh, rigorous analysis, this idea of a rent freeze, but the messaging is about a political party speaking to a group of people, a significant slice of people, particularly young people who are yep. locked out of home ownership, who, who don't even really aspire to it in many yep. cases because it seems so unrealistic, so so far off. And, and, and they now have a political party that is overtly and directly saying, we represent you, we are going to push your interests. Because implicit right through our political logic in this country has been... You used the term before yourself, the housing, the Australian dream, you know, uh, the idea of home ownership. Mm. And for a lot of people, uh, a lot of quite highly educated people, people at this university, people who've been through universities, uh, people who have, you know, uh, professional qualifications, who don't see home ownership as possible. And they now see a, a party saying... We represent you. We're going to be the party of renters. I I think it's, uh, you know, it's a pretty clever strategy.
1: It's politically powerful. But my real concern is, you know, I have, I've got friends who in that situation who don't believe, you know, they can ever buy their own home. I've got so many people in Wentworth, you know, who either move out, you know, I've got Parents who who have benefited from sort of the growth in housing, um, you know, value over time, who are going, I don't know how my kids are ever going to be able to, you know, buy a house or, you know, how are they going to pay their rent without me sort of helping them? And or dying? So, yeah, and yeah, and it's exactly, yeah, yeah. and it's across the country. And I just think it's so unfair. Um, but I'm I'm fearful of of part of of part of you know. Policies that sound good, yeah, um, that could make this worse, and I, and that's why I think you know we do need to look at the evidence. We need to move beyond that, um, you know that that sort of sort of policy bias of survey, because and the reason why I got interested in citizens' assembly in the first place was because I've always been interested in policy, um, but I didn't, you know, I just was like, how can I be across so many different issues and be really across them? And you know, you you see mm. in all the sort of political sort of surveys, you know, people give their instinctive reaction to. Hmm. To policies, because frankly, we're all on. we everyone's got something else to do with their lives apart hmm. from analysing the policy. But I think that this is what citizens assemblies do: give people a chance to really go into the detail to make very informed decisions, and then feed that into the political process rather than you know the sort of consulting or other pieces, which you know people just give their sort of you know immediate gut, gut reaction rather than that reaction based on on the evidence, which, which
2: is often actually um, like. Like it, how the question is asked will often shape the the answer as well, right? If you ask people, "Oh, does everyone have a right to a home?" Everyone will say yes, yeah. you know, because it's the equivalent of "Do mothers love their babies," yeah. right? <laughs> um, but then, you know, if you start asking about the tax treatment of things, then you'll obviously get a different set of answers again. And I think that's the issue around like even if we just look at housing from the f- sort of federal government's perspective, it is actually quite complicated, and it is. From a policy perspective, interesting that – actually over time like we've had this conversation around sovereign wealth funds which have never gone anywhere but we are actually kind of doing that slowly like we keep setting up these sort of funds and these sort of instruments and it goes back to previous I suppose implementation failures so I think the the Rudd government was interested in incentivizing private investment in the housing market through sort of tax deductions and I think there was a lot of work done with the then minister that I think was Plibersek um, with with the sort of groups about exactly how to organize it and how to set it up, so it would work well, and then it went through the sort of political office and it was sort of changed because in a sort of um utopia style moment or a Hollywood <laughs> moment, right? Like we need a we need a bigger number, you know, we need it to that's know. not very exciting. Yeah, yes. exactly. And so therefore and so therefore it didn't really meet the goals, right? That mm. that or the or the hype because it was never it was not designed to do that. I mean I think that's why I would be quite interested to see such a Citizens Assembly kind of um come up because we have had, like this is a really long-winded way of saying, like, we've had a lot of layering in this policy domain and, and the reality is is that it actually requires several big changes. Like it, it requires a significant amount of of government investment because there has been a gross underinvestment, right? And then it also requires a big changes to the tax treatment of this asset. Um, and but that's, the, but that's, this that, but, that, that, but therein yeah.
0: lay the problem. This is the part of the sort of that we, we referred to earlier. The political machine; it, it's been incapable of of, of of addressing this problem because the major political parties, neither of them, neither of the two major political sides, uh, want to be responsible for a reduction in housing values. I mean, we see a reduction at the moment arising from you know punishing interest rates, but essentially governments don't want to. You know, most people's prime asset is their home and, uh, and and they get wealthier over time as a result of the appreciation of that asset. That's the general trajectory. And governments don't want to tinker with that. It's you know like well, you said it's there's emotional this right well, well, it's I emotional guess, guess it's that's, financial that's but but, it... but the problem is if you're not prepared to do that then you are not going to get redistribution in this in this market well, with that's, the, that's c- finite correct, supply right? a finite n- supply of houses and uh, increasing demand and you know you, you can you can try and get these things in balance but if you're hamstrung by not being prepared to touch the policy architecture which favours those who already hold houses and to the point where they can become bidders and drive up the price for second and third and fourth houses and so forth, then, yeah. you know, you, you're not getting to the problem.
1: No, I'm sorry. I was saying, look, I'm just saying I, I think that, you know, I always come back to what does the community want? community wants everyone to be able to afford to, you know, to have you know secure home home you know or sort of housing um and also i think a chance to to buy their house over time you know i don't think you want i don't think also the community wants any sort of radical changes but these you know these things won't won't happen quickly but you know we you know, we do absolutely need to address supply i think that is absolutely critical i think the government's right to be honest in uh, in identifying that but they're not bold enough to be mm. honest in doing anything about it and that's that's what i um it's that urgency that i want to that i think that the community can help the government see how urgent an issue it is in this com- in our country yeah. that people can't do this and and how i think I think it's a very serious threat um, to you know our absolutely wonderful democracy, which yeah. you know which is imperfect but still thriving compared to almost anyone in around the world. Um, if we if people feel completely shut out, um, for, you know from you know from affordable housing in in you know in their future, and so I think I think this is yeah that's super the contract,
0: critical. isn't it? I mean, the, it it, it, you may contract. not have house now, but if you have a realistic prospect of getting one, of yeah. getting ahead, and so forth, then you have an investment in the system. Yeah. I don't mean just a financial investment, but a but a life investment yeah, a, it is. A, a sort of a social a psychological investment but if you don't yeah. well, what 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 is your stake in the maintenance of the system and we've seen the results of that in the U.S., where you know, I I'm, mean, I'm, you know, Kim Beasley, uh, who I was talking about before, I remember him making this point when he came back from being the U.S. ambassador, and he was making the point that there hadn't been a wage rise in the U.S. at that stage mm. since the 1970s—a real wage rise for working people—and mm. we see the results of that in the in in the rise of Trumpism and alienation and and the sense of you know utter distrust in the political system in in Washington and so forth. So. This is really corrosive, potentially, mm. uh, if we have a large section of our population who are just being told, no, you're not part of this this story. Mm. Um, I want to go to w- what your assessment is of where the government's at on this suggestion because I saw you the other day ask mm. a question of the PM mm. uh, and he stood up mm. and uh, you know, he was generous enough and all that, but then he made this point. He said, uh, but I have always regarded this <laughs> house as... Uh, 151 member yeah. citizens assembly.
1: Yeah. Look, I mean, I, I say well, what if I'd had a right of reply, I would have said, "Well, this house has failed the Australian people for the last twenty years on housing. So, yeah. you know, I want to try a different one." And yeah. and I think is that, anyone
0: saying anything to you? Kind no, of, I think or,
1: this is I think this is a, going to be a bit of a long game. And for me, the you know the goal is to is to engage them on this and and to gauge across the parliament because I don't. This is no threat to the government's authority. This is no threat to the House of. Um, Reps, this is a chance to actually have a, a more thoughtful conversation mm. about housing, and I think it's in—I think it's in people's—I think it's actually in all the major parties' political interest, as well as in you know the national interest. Yeah, because so, it
0: could provide them with sort of out and 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 I yeah, suppose exactly in the right. context of the uh, you know the PwC scandal and and the attention that is brought on the way governments Maria rely so heavily on consultants, this is another form of advice to them, but free of all that taint of all ah uh, uh, you know of profiteering um you know getting a genuine cross section of the community to wrestle with so called wicked problems lot lot to be said for it
2: yeah definitely i mean i, th- I mean i think where its potential really kind of lies is 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 in the sort of emotion and the imagination of the community, because as as we've sort of been saying, right, this is an emotional touchstone. It's sort of how people see themselves as being members of our community. But there, there are actually many ways to belong, right? Like it doesn't all have to gear towards home ownership. Mm. Like we could decide to become a society of renters and give renters rights, like significantly different kinds Uh. of rights. So it doesn't have to be about home ownership, I mean, but we are a home ownership society and so therefore not being able to own one is emotionally so difficult. And I don't mean that to sort of say, oh, it's emotional and not rational and therefore it's not good. No, no, what what I am saying is is that most people change their minds basically on emotional calculi, Mm. which is essentially what these Citizens assemblies in Ireland on um, abortion and gay rights were able to do. They were able to to shift the emotional way that people understood the issue and move them out of one set of thinking into another. And I think that's actually where a citizens assembly has the, the the biggest kind of potential because. You've sort of made the point, Mark, and so have you actually, Allegra. We actually know how to fix this problem. It's not a lack of expertise. It's a problem that politicians think they have about convincing people. And so this is a vehicle, an education vehicle that could be quite useful to them Mm. right you know like i thought it was really interesting that peter dutton said he wanted australians to think of the liberal party and the jingling of house keys when they voted and his solution was for young people to spend their retirement income savings Mm. on buying a house and it's just like that's that's not the image you want to be putting in people's minds
1: you know (laughs) yeah he
0: he obviously does
1: I, I think it's I think this is an opportunity both for the emotional but also for the rational and yeah. and I use um the city of Melbourne as an example because that was a very rational issue where they had a um, the city had a, a one point I think two billion dollar deficit going forward and they basically the the council couldn't agree should they increase rates should they sell assets or should they stop um, stop spending money that they'd promised and they had just reached an impasse and that's what the citizens assembly did was they actually identified I think a 900 million dollar worth of changes, including some changes to rates, some selling of assets, and some and some reduction of programs. Which is which is probably the rational response mm, um, to yeah. that. But the ones that the councillors admit that they just couldn't even have the conversation because of of the potential for political wedging. So I I think this this is a very emotional issue for Australia, and I hundred percent agree with you. It goes to the heart of. You know of what it is to Australian, and and I think to the idea of a fair go, um and and that's but I and I think this is a but this is the opportunity to combine the emotional and the rational, and to also discount um, challenges like the. Um, you know, this idea of freezing rents, which emotionally appeals, but rationally, you know, is is I think actually much more of a dangerous policy. So that's why I like it, because I think it can yeah. engage both. Yeah.
0: yeah, I think it's really well put. I think the potential is to get those two things together and perhaps mm. to challenge some of our kind of uh, uh, that, you know, the power of that myth, you know, mm. the Australian dream, uh, the power of that as a, as a sort of a trope f- from which we are You know, might need to escape or or reinterpret in such a way that actually is more inclusive because Mm. its original intent was about inclusion, Mm. but it's now become exclusionary for so many people. Mm. And we have it, we see it in policies like negative gearing, where landlords are subsidised by the, by the taxpayer for making a loss. right? So that means that they can rent out a property and their losses, they can count against their taxable income. Um, that effectively is a subsidy. Now, would that be better going to renters rather than going to uh, investors who in, in those homes? There's an argument, there's a discussion to be had around those sorts of questions, and that goes to your point, Maria, before about uh, whether we just have to be homeowners or whether we might actually shift our thinking and and be long-term renters, like in so many European countries and and even in, mm. in in you know New York and places like that.
1: And look, I will raise negative gearing because I think you know from the evidence I've looked at, um, even reducing negative gearing would not have a significant impact on house prices. But so I think I would look at negative gearing more of a tax question. To be honest, and what should the tax system look like, rather than perhaps as much of a uh, as as much of a housing policy. But I think the politically, truth is that, though, it's a third political, rail, it? it's yeah. on politically. It's what when people think of housing policy, they go straight to negative gearing. And I think that's where again having this conversation, saying, look, how big an impact it is, how serious, you know, is this? Should we be considering it? The, all these options should be on the table. And mm. I, then I and then I do trust the Australian, you know, populace to come up with some some thoughtful recommendations. And then the government of the day can, of course choose what they they go forward with you mm. know so I, I agree very much with the pwc we spend a lot of money on consultants this is another type of consulting um but i think is likely to be much more powerful
0: yeah so we could move from negative gearing and past negative hearing and <laughs> on, on to, <laughs> onto something else. Onto something else. Yeah, something better. Uh, Allegra Spender, thanks for being with us on Democracy Sausage. It's been absolutely terrific to have you along, coming across the frozen lake this yes, morning. It's, um. it's very
1: cold this morning. Beautifully yeah. cold.
0: <laughs> Minus very four, cold. I think. Uh, yeah. as, as cold as I've, uh, well, pretty much as cold as I've seen in Canberra in many years. Uh, it's
2: been a while since it's been this cold. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah. Thanks, Maria. Pleasure.
0: Uh, That's Democracy Sausage for this week. Uh, We look forward to talking to you again from the studio at ANU. You can contact us in the meantime uh, on our email, which is democracy sausage or one word, at anu.edu.au. We look forward to hearing from you, You get your feedback there, and you can, of course, uh, subscribe to the podcast, leave a rating should you so desire. Uh, We'll look forward to talking to you again next week when we'll be dealing with some other interesting and thorny political or policy or both problems. Bye for now. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter.